We've got this week and next week remaining in our study of First Peter. And we've been walking through this book and learning from Peter that we exist in this world as strangers. We are strangers and aliens living in a strange and alien world. And that uh, because of the gospel, because of what God has done through Jesus for us, bringing us to a new and living hope in him, we have been called out of this world. But not called out of this world to live in our own corner of the world. We're called out in order to love and serve our neighbors. And um, we're, we're getting to the end of his letter. And in fact, today he's going to talk about the end of the world. Um, and so we're going to read this passage and talk about it. And there's really only two points I want to make today. And, and really, if you don't remember anything else I say this morning, I want you to get this. This is Peter's main thrust here. Because Jesus is coming back, we need to live lives of love. Because Jesus is coming back, we need to live lives of love. So my two points are this sober truth and what does a life of love look like? Let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter of encouragement that teaches us about who you are and what you have done and what you have called us to do. I pray now as I speak that you would communicate through me, that I would speak oracles of God pointing us to you and your grace. We pray for our hearts that we would be receptive of your truth and brought to the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, two points, the sober truth and a life of love. Um, If you watched college game day, not this weekend, but last weekend, when it was down at OSU, Saturday morning before the football games began, um, you know, you, you probably saw signs. That's pretty popular on college game day. Everyone brings a sign with a clever phrase or a picture, something funny, hoping to get on camera, right? And well, if you were watching, uh, you might have seen, at least I saw, there were two signs in particular that stood out to me. I I didn't quite read everything on there, but I saw enough to see that these signs said something about 
Consider the extreme love of Jesus. Repent and turn to him. And I have nothing against that. I hope that someone saw that and, and that there was fruit of righteousness from it. But I'll be honest, when I saw that sign, I, I cringed a little bit. I'm sure we've all got pictures in our head of people with you know, A-frame boards around their body walking on the street corners saying, repent, believe in Jesus, and it makes us cringe a little bit. On 71 south of Columbus, there's a big billboard off the side of the highway in the cornfield that says, hell is real, and, and it is, but I cringe thinking about that. Like, what kind of message is that sending to people? And in our university square, when I was in college, there was a guy that came every spring that stood on a soapbox and said, the end of the world is coming soon. Repent and believe in Jesus. And I, ugh, it just got under my skin a little bit. Like, I don't not believe those things, obviously. But I wonder what kind of message is that sending. And so when I first started looking at this passage, I cringed a little bit. Because that's what Peter says. The end of everything is at hand. The end of the world is near. It's kind of a startling message. But this message from Peter is in line with the rest of what the New Testament teaches us. Jesus shared parable after parable of some master of a kingdom or a house going off into a faraway country and then suddenly coming back. He, he talks about how uh, he is the bridegroom who is delayed and that the, the, the bridal party needs to be ready because the bridegroom is going to come back suddenly. You know, he says, Jesus even says, I don't even know the hour or the day that I'll return, but I'm coming back. So Peter isn't saying anything new. He's saying whatever it is that he learned from Jesus himself. Jesus is coming back. And he says it's at hand. It's near to happening. It could happen at any moment. It could happen any minute now. Now, Peter's writing 2,000 years ago, and he says Jesus is coming back any minute now. So was, was Peter wrong? Was Peter wrong to say Jesus is coming back any minute now? You know, Jesus himself said he doesn't even know the time of his return. The Father knows that. But he did say, I am coming, it is certain, so be ready. I think any parent in the room knows a little bit about uh, that certainty of expectation and yet the uncertainty of when. Any first-time parent knows that as the due date arrives, there's a baby coming. And you don't know when, but you know it's coming. And so they teach you in class the birthing class, to have a bag ready. You know, have, have a bag with clothes ready to pick up on a moment's notice because you don't know the time or the place, but you know at any moment you have to drop everything 
and go. So he's right. It could happen at any moment. That was true 2,000 years ago, and it is true today. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when, but we know it's happening, and it could happen suddenly. Peter says this is actually a self-controlled way to think about the world. He, He says that this is the sober way to think about the reality of the world. It's not crazy to think that the world is coming to an end soon. It's actually reasonable and sensible. Peter uses the word self-controlled to describe thinking this way. And this is the same word that we read in in Mark chapter 5, when Jesus has healed the man who is possessed by demons. You remember the story, Jesus heals this man and then sends the demons into the herd of pigs, and then the pigs run off the side of the cliff. The villagers come back to see what Jesus did to this man, and when they come to them, it says that we see this man seated by Jesus, clothed, and in his right mind. That's the same word. Peter is saying it's not crazy to think that the end of the world is near. It's actually crazy to think otherwise. The sane way to think about the world is that Jesus could come back any minute now. So be ready. Be ready. He's coming back soon. Peter says, Jesus is coming back, therefore, this is how you should live. Do you see how he builds that sentence? Jesus is coming back, therefore, this is how you should live. It's a a pivot. He uses that word, therefore, to, to pivot between this great and wonderful truth of ultimate reality and telling us how we should live in response to that. This is true, therefore live like this. This is the formula behind how the whole Bible tells us how to live. That behind every command for how we are to conduct our lives, there is this formula of this is true about God and what he has done through Jesus for you. Therefore, live like this. And this is radically different than the way that the rest of the world talks about how we should live our lives. The Bible is is rooted in this timeless truth about who God is, but the way that the world talks about how we should live our lives is absent of that. I'm sure you've heard people say, you can't tell me how to live. Don't force your religion on me. Your way of thinking about the world is fine, just don't impose it on me. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe that's, that's what you believe. That, that morality or ethics, how we should conduct our lives is really, hey, what works for you is good for you. What works for me is good for me. Just don't impose your will 
on me. On just this week, I saw a friend of mine on, on Instagram post, you know, you can post a post on your story. Well, they posted someone else's post on their story. And um, this, is, this is what it read. God is not Christian. God is not a Jew. God is not a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist. All those are human systems which human beings have created to help us walk into the mystery of God. I honor my tradition. I walk through my tradition. But I don't think that my tradition defines God. I think it only points me to God. The logic of that post is this. The Christian way of understanding God and God's desire for humanity, well, that's not ultimate truth. It might point us to God, but it's not ultimate truth. And the Muslim way of understanding God and about what God wants for us, well, that's, there's truth there too, but it's not ultimate truth. You see, all the truths of the world are just these fragments of truth, but they're not ultimate truths. The conclusion of this argument is, do not impose your view of morality and the world on me, because your view is wrong. This is a let, let live, live and let live approach. You do you, I'll do me. But the problem with this thinking, there's a couple problems with this thinking. First, I mean, the argument itself is self-defeating. Like, no one can legitimately say, your view of ultimate truth is wrong. You can't say someone else's ultimate way of thinking about God and the universe uh, is wrong. Sorry, let me, let me read what I put. You, you can't say to someone, there is not one ultimate way to think about God and the universe, because that's imposing because that statement itself is self-defeating. To make a comment like that is to make an ultimate truth about the world. You can't say there aren't ultimate truths about the world because that itself is an ultimate truth about the world. But if we just dive deeper into this, we'll see it doesn't work another way. Because if you say, you do you, I do me, just don't offend me, don't hurt me, don't hurt other people, well, who is to define what that means? On what basis do you make that claim? The, the pluralist who's making this defense bases their moral principle on an ever-changing cultural presumption. Even the, the argument, do what you want, just don't hurt anyone, falls into this trap. Because what does it mean to hurt someone? Who gets to define what's offensive? Who gets to define who's hurt? Or what, uh, it def what's the definition of vulnerable? These things change according to culture. So the pluralist roots their ethics in an ever-changing reality. There's no firm basis for it. But when the scripture calls us to live a certain way, it roots that argument in the timeless truth of God's reality. 
It roots it in the timeless truth of who God is and what he has done. Jesus is coming back, the Lord of lords and King of kings. He is returning, therefore live a certain way. This is the way that the Bible invites us to think about how we live our lives. Jesus is coming back, therefore live your life in accordance with that truth. All right, let's look now. What does it mean to live a life of love that Peter calls us to? Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. In light of the reality that Jesus is coming back, Peter says that we are to love, to keep on loving one another And it isn't a general kind of love, a feel-good kind of love. He has in mind a specific kind of love that brings people together and knits them together into a community. Because three times in this passage, he talks about the product of this kind of love. He says, keep loving one another. Show hospitality to one another. Serve one another. The purpose of living this life of love is to be built together into an entity, a church, a community of people called out of this world, the people of God, his own possession, the people who have received mercy and grace. We are called to live as a community, as a church. Almost every week as I've been preparing these messages in 1 Peter, the commentators are repeatedly again and again pointing out that in this letter, almost always when we read in our English translations the word you, that in the original it is a plural you, you all. We just don't have a good second-person plural word in our vocabulary, and so we miss it. But almost every time that Peter commands something of us, he is commanding us as a church. His commands to live this way, his commands to love this way, are commands given to the church as a church. Yes, made up of individuals, but never individuals on their own. For example... Last week, we talked about how Peter says that we ought to be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have in Jesus, but that command itself is a plural command. You all, as a church, be ready as a community to give a defense for the faith that you have. Peter is saying, above all things, live your life as a loving community in light of the imminent return of Jesus. And he gives us three examples. Love one another earnestly, because love covers a multitude of sins. To love earnestly, we, we looked at this at the very beginning of his letter, it means to be stretched beyond level of comfort. To be pulled beyond your comfort zone. It means going the extra mile with 
people. Peter is saying that loving like this is to be stretched out like a blanket that, that is pulled tight and covers other people's offenses. The kind of love that is quick to forgive. The kind of love that is quick to let little offenses go. We aren't the ones who are giving other people forgiveness. Jesus Christ himself has covered our sins, but we are to love one another in a way that we are united as a community, quick to forgive and overlook offenses. We are united to one another. It means we overlook and forgive out of our own heart. We remain united despite our differences. We enter into a covenant and are committed to one another despite when it gets difficult. When we welcome new members into our church, we invite them and ask them to take a vow of membership. And what the vow of membership is saying, I am committing myself to this church. I am committing myself to you and you to me so that when it gets difficult, when there is sin between us because we're all fallen, broken human beings, I am vowing to pursue reconciliation. I am vowing to pursue forgiveness with you. I am vowing to overlook and forgive sin. No other social group in the world vows like that. I think marriage is the closest thing, but even in the world, marriage isn't like that. Peter says, love one another as a church, built together, united together, overlooking the offenses of one another, because you love one another. He then says, show hospitality to one another. That is, open up your home to others. Open up your lives to others. And this is a command for every believer to be hospitable. This is just as forceful of a command as thou shall not commit adultery. It's not a suggestion, it's not a recommendation, it is a command. Show hospitality to one another. This means that we are to open up our homes, our families, and our lives to one another. This isn't inviting your buddies over from church to watch the game or to check out a new piece of furniture that you've got or to sit on the patio and look at your barbecue setup. Scripture highlights that showing hospitality is is to be towards widows and orphans and the poor and the vulnerable, the outcasts. According to the Bible, hospitality is inviting people who need to be loved, who need a meal, who, who are unlikely to ever repay you for your invitation. It is inviting someone who is in need to find that love in your home, in your house, in your family. Will that be easy? Will we always enjoy doing that? Will it always be comfortable? No. No, not at all. But God, he's always willing to open up his gates. The kingdom of grace is available to anyone. And he's offering it to anyone who is looking for it. We're called to imitate him. We are to show hospitality. We're to do it without grumbling. It means not saying to our spouse, 
Why are we always the ones opening up our house? Or saying, gosh, I just wish they would leave. They have overstayed their welcome. It is through showing this kind of hospitality that many others, not just fellow Christians, but many people will see this love at work. Love one another. Show hospitality to one another. Finally, he says, serve one another. He says, each one of you in the church has been given a gift. Each one of you has received something from God's grace, and you are to use that gift to serve the church. You are to be good stewards of that gift to serve one another. Every believer in the church has been given some gift, a skill, a tool, a passion, an ability. And these are from God, the the giver of all good things. He has given them to us, not for our own sake, but for the sake of building up the church. We each benefit from one another when we each are using our gifts to serve. When I was a kid, I... uh, for a, a, a minute, I enjoyed watching Power Rangers. Maybe you watched Power Rangers as a kid. And I don't remember much. I do remember there was one specific season where each of the Power Rangers, when they got into the final battle every episode, that they each had like um, a big robot animal. Like there was one that was a lion, and one was an elephant, one was a bird, one was maybe a lizard. And they were fighting, but they, they couldn't on their own take on the enemy. And it wasn't until each of them took their robots and morphed them together to make a big robot that they were able to take down the enemy. Look, each one of us has been given this gift to use for the advancement of the kingdom, for building up his church. And we can do it on our own a little bit, but we are we are losing out on this wonderful opportunity to combine our gifts together in service to one another, each one bringing something to the table to lift up one another and encourage one another. And so look, look around. We've got a lot of kids. We're, we, our numbers are increasing, and we're going to have to uh, have a third class soon. But that means we need more volunteers to serve church. Josh and Bethany are in the back week after week serving audio and video. We need more people serving. We've been welcoming new people all summer long, and I'm hoping and expecting that the Lord continues to bring people into our midst. I would love it if we had a team of people showing up 10 minutes early, serving the church by standing at the door, greeting people, handing out bulletins. I would love this stage to be filled with a bassist and a drummer and more singers offering voices and gifts and skills to serve the church. Like, I know that there are gifts out there because I believe that the Bible is true and the Bible just said each one of us in this room has been given a gift to serve the church. Let's be good stewards of those gifts. Jesus tells a parable about giving gifts to servants. He tells us that there was this master who gave talents to three of his servants. 
a talent was a sum of money, an investment that they were to use to build up the kingdom. And the master went away into a far off country for an unknown amount of time. And the expectation was that the servants of the master would take the gifts and invest it in building up the kingdom. And the master came and returned suddenly to check in on what his servants had done with what he had given them. And the first was given five talents, and he took that and invested in and doubled his money. And so he was like, Master, I've, I've made 10 talents for you. And the second one was given two talents, and he took that and invested it and built up his kingdom and said, look, Master, I've invested this double. I've got four talents for you now. And to both of them, the Master says, well done, good and faithful servant. But then the third one came, and he said, Master, I know and feared that you were harsh and that when you would come back, you would demand things from me that I couldn't give you. And so I went away and buried what you gave me and I didn't use it for your kingdom. And the master took what he had given to this third man and gave it to the others and then banished this one from the kingdom. And the point of this parable is that God has given his people gifts to be used for the sake of building up his kingdom. And we are to invest that in the life of the church. We are to build up his kingdom by serving one another with what God has given us. Jesus is coming back and he will look into what we have done with the gifts that he has given us. Now, I want to be clear about this as I conclude. Jesus' return should not cause us to fear. Christians do not fear the return of Jesus. He is our Savior. He has loved us with everything he had. He has died for us to make us his own. There is no fear of eternal judgment or punishment for our sin. Christians do not fear the return of Jesus. The, the pagan world, the unbelieving world, they should fear Jesus. He is coming back as a judge. He will hold the world accountable for their sins. But for his own, he is coming back to comfort us to bring us final salvation. For those who have trusted in Jesus, his return should not scare us. He has already dealt with our sin. He has already died for our sin. He has already clothed us with his righteousness. We stand perfectly holy and righteous before him. Nevertheless, when he does come back, there should be an appropriate amount of fear whether or not we have lived this life of love that Peter is here describing. A kind of life that is quick to forgive one another. The kind of life that is ready to open up our homes and our houses and our lives for one another. Willing to serve one another. This is the kind of life that is pleasing to the Lord. And we should want to please him. We should fear having lived a life that wasn't pleasing to him. 
We don't live like this in order to gain his favor. We have his favor through Christ. But we do live this way to enjoy his relationship deeper. It is because we already are united to him forever that we want to live a life of love. It is because we already have received his favor through Christ that we are to live our lives like this. It is because we are covenanted to him, bound to him, that we are to live a life that pleases him and serves him. When Sarah goes out with friends in the evening to hang out, especially on nights when she leaves like before uh, we cook dinner and do bath time and bedtime, and like the house is, is messed up from the day, toys are everywhere, dishes are on the counter. Um, there is an expectation in our household that we clean up, that we make our house pretty and nice and clean. We share this expectation. And if she's gone, I don't know when she's coming home, but if I want to enjoy my relationship with her and make it deeper, I'm going to clean up the house. I'm going to put the toys away. I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to make our house so wonderful that when she comes home, when she comes to check in on how things are, um, that everything's put back. Not because I fear what she's going to say to me. I don't fear that if I don't clean up, that Sarah's going to see it and then leave. We're covenanted together. No, I, I do this out of love for her and love for our family. I do this because this is the best way that I can clean up the house to enjoy my relationship with her. We're to take what God has given us and find the opportunity in that now to live a life of love, knowing Jesus is coming back. And if we live this way, it will be pleasing to him. He could come back at any moment. We don't fear as Christians that we'll face judgment. But Peter is saying we ought to live lives of love. We ought to live in a way that pleases our Lord that enjoys his relationship, that seeks to use his gifts that he has given to us to build up his church. We do this because he loves us, because we want to enjoy that love more and more. Let's pray.